Due to the themes covered, this podcast is suitable only for adult audiences and not suitable for children. There is information at the end of this podcast about where you can go to get help. The scale is getting bigger. It's becoming more readily available. For 10 or 12 pounds, you can direct a child to be raped. When I was 13 years old, um, I was speaking to somebody online and they pretended to be a female model. Um, they complimented me and talked me into sharing images of myself online. More and more violent pictures of babies, even being sexual abused, even newborn babies in some sexual compromising images. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of a sad commentary on human nature in a way. Some of the abuse that we see is of ever younger children, and we have people who advocate the rape of pre-verbal children. We believe that there is a really big story to be told, and we maybe need to be telling it more clearly, and that people really need to understand the severity of the abuse that we're talking about. Pixels from a Crime Scene, Episode 1. There's no such thing as child pornography. I'm Angela Young, and this is Pixels from a Crime Scene, a six-part podcast series looking at the work of the Internet Watch Foundation and its partners. Their job is to find and remove child sexual abuse material from the Internet. I've spent the past few months getting to know more about this organisation and the vital role it plays in combating the huge problem of child sexual abuse material. I've met many of the staff who work there, and they have a story to tell. It's a story that will take us around the world and into the dark web. We'll hear from those trying to protect and safeguard children from becoming involved in the creation, production and distribution of this appalling content. We'll hear from girls who've become victims of child sexual abuse online, from offenders and their families, from the analysts who spend their days trawling the web for this material and from law enforcement agencies. It's not going to be an easy lesson and at times will be very graphic in its description of abuse. But it's an ugly truth that needs to be faced. It is our hope that by listening to and sharing this series, you will join the fight to get this crime out into the open. This series will be successful if more people are aware of the issue and know how they can do something about it. We don't know the true scale of the amount of material online, but we know it's a massive problem and it appears to be growing. Susie Hargreaves is the CEO of the IWF and I'll be talking to her throughout the series. First, though, I wanted to know why, in spite of everything being done, nearly 25 years after the problem began to emerge, it's still growing. When I started at the IWF over eight years ago, that year we removed 9,000 web pages of child sexual abuse. Compare that to last year in 2019, where we removed 132,000 web pages. And each web page could have one or hundreds or even thousands of images on them. 
But why is it growing? I mean, that sounds quite a negative story, but there are a number of reasons. The first is that as more people come online, as more countries have access to the internet and access to 4 and 5G, uh, then there's more ways for people to share this content. We have lots of new platforms that people are using. But on the positive side, we also have better technology at finding it. So we know there's more content out there, but we're trying to stay one step ahead of the criminals by using the technology and the intelligence garnered by our analysts and team over 20 years to go out there and find it. People say there are millions of images out there. Do we know the true scale? No, unfortunately, we don't know the true scale. And people are right, there are millions, but... Those millions are made up of a number of factors. So um, majority of images and videos are duplicates. So that sort of skews the data somewhat as well. But also new images are coming online every day, unfortunately. So it's a, it's a, a changeable feast from day to day. But to give you a sense of what the actual content is for us that we're dealing with, of the 132,000 web pages removed last year, that would be millions of images. And of them, around 95% of them were girls and 47% were of images of children aged under 10. And 1%, which is actually quite a lot in terms of numbers, were children aged under 2. And unfortunately, the worst level of abuse happens to the younger the child. So not 2 is generally the worst level of abuse. And one of the really appalling growing statistics, unfortunately, is that a third of all the content we removed last year was self-generated content. So this is content where... Uh, young girls predominantly, so about 80% of them were 11 to 13 in their bedrooms and domestic settings on webcams um, and laptops and camera-enabled devices are actually being tricked, coerced, exploited into sharing really graphic images of themselves. We'll hear more from Susie throughout the series. And let's be clear what we're talking about. When you hear of cases in the news, they often talk about category A, B or C, Fred Langford, the IWF's chief technical officer, is just going to explain what those categories are. And a content warning here, the language is quite strong. Category A is images involving penetrative sexual activity, uh, images involving sexual activity with an animal or sadism. Uh, category B are images involving non-penetrative sexual activity. And category C are other indecent images not falling in with the previous two categories, but with a clear sexual focus. The Internet Watch Foundation was set up in 1996 to fulfil an independent role in receiving, assessing and tracing public complaints about child sexual abuse content on the Internet. They operate a hotline service for the public to report potentially criminal content and have been issuing takedown notices to UK ISPs in partnership with the police so they can remove the content. And they do a brilliant job. The UK hosts less than half a percent of this material. But the picture is a complicated one. A child is being abused in one country, the materials being hosted in another, and being viewed in a third. The UK's most senior police officer involved in online child protection is Simon Bailey, Chief Constable of Norfolk and the National Police Chief's Council lead on child protection. He explains the number of people, mostly men, who are looking at these images. You now look at the UK being the third biggest consumer of online child sexual abuse, where they are directing the abuse of a child in the Philippines. You look at the 
the referrals that organisations like the Lucy Faithful Foundation are now getting, I think those figures are conservative. And worryingly, we are now seeing the emergence of a, of a new group of offenders. We have historically talked about those men who are predisposed to have a sexual interest in children. That, that group obviously still exists, but what we are now seeing is a group of young men aged between 18 and 26 who have been brought up, if that's the right word, on a staple diet of going to visit Pornhub and sites like that, viewing pornography, that pornography becoming increasingly more hardcore as they become desensitised to the porn. And then they get to the point where there's no pornographic material that is stimulating them. So they then start to explore what child abuse imagery might look like and they then start to get their kicks from that. And the fact is that that, I fear, will only get worse. And when you look at 4 and 5G then getting to the African continent, you look at the opportunities that will be afforded by people who are living in poverty to then exploit children to generate income. I, I fear for what the future holds. And in the last five, six years that I've now been leading the police services response to this, what I have seen is the threat is changing. It's never static. The challenge is getting greater. The levels of abuse are getting worse. The age of the children being abused are getting younger. So it's a, in some respects, it's actually a, a really depressing story. Despite the fact that that in the UK we are delivering the best response in the world, bar none. That success that I'm very proud of is, is really tinged with a sense of, but it's not actually enough. And whilst we are arresting 500 offenders every month, safeguarding 700 children every month, the volumes of referrals keep growing, the scale and levels of depravity just keep growing. So... There, there is a real question mark for me in terms of, right, what more could we, should we be doing? Because actually, despite our best efforts, despite throwing the kitchen sink at this, the challenge actually is getting worse and it's getting bigger. And we have got to start being very honest about this. We have got to start debating this more in public, no matter how horrible it might be as a subject to talk about. We have got to start coming to terms with the fact that there are some appalling things taking place online, that unfortunately the internet is probably, in these circumstances, the root of most of the evils. And we have to start looking at that, and we have to start generally asking the question, how much more are we going to tolerate? The UK's top child protection officer, Simon Bailey. The IWF was set up to combat a growing problem, which was being facilitated by the arrival of the internet. Before then, people with an unhealthy interest in children were isolated, but suddenly they found other people with the same desires. John Carr is one of the world's leading authorities on children's and young people's use of the internet and new technologies. One of the first things the British public became aware of was that suddenly something that which they then called child pornography was becoming available in the kind of volumes that had never previously been imagined or heard of. Typically, when the police would arrest a paedophile or somebody in possession of child uh, sex abuse materials, they'd have two or three pictures, maybe one video, 
A hundred would be astonishing. A thousand almost unheard of. Uh, whereas now, guys are being picked up with tens of thousands, 20,000 and so on. And the police didn't know what to do about it. The British public didn't know what to make of it. And the IWF came out of that kind of uncertainty and angst. The internet is a technology. It doesn't make people do anything. People do things. But what the internet unquestionably did was two things. First of all, it allowed paedophiles, people with a sexual interest in children, people with an interest in sexual images of children, to contact each other and form social groupings with each other. So suddenly they didn't feel so weird or alone, and it sort of normalised their, their behaviour and spurred them on and emboldened them. The second thing that it did was that it made these images available with apparent anonymity. So again, people who might otherwise never have bothered or trying to find these images or might not have bothered downloading them, suddenly they were there. Uh, and they believed they were acting anonymously. In 1997, Sir William Utting produced a document called People Like Us, and he described the internet then, when he was speaking about child pornography, as he called it at the time, he said it was um, up until the arrival of the internet, the production and distribution of child pornography was a cottage industry. That was the phrase he used. And what he meant was it was small scale and it was highly localised. So if you wanted to get hold of that type of image, you had to basically know somebody who already had some. You could get it mail order, but it was just troublesome and difficult. All of those things were dissolved by the arrival of the internet. That was John Carr speaking. I've come to the offices of the Internet Watch Foundation to give you a feeling for the place and the people who work here. Now, it's based on a small business park in a pretty village with thatched cottages just outside Cambridge in the UK. From the rather nondescript green glass exterior, there's nothing to suggest what might happen inside and nothing to show how significant the work is that is done here. Let's go inside. The entrance is airy and well-lit, with logos a, a bit like at a football press conference, listing members, Sky, BT, TalkTalk Talk, and PayPal, etc. And there's also a security status alert. Now, these are all clues to the fact that not everyone approves of what the IWF does, remove child sexual abuse material from the internet. Now, we're going through this door into the kitchen. And off the kitchen is the recreation room. And it's decorated with astroturf-type grass and bunting and even a table tennis table where the analyst can go and relax on their coffee break. Now, there's another door here, and I'm not allowed any further for obvious reasons. But we gave a recording device to one of the analysts, Ellie, to give us a glimpse into her working day. And to counteract the disturbing nature of the material the analysts see, the radio plays cheerful music in the background. At the moment, I'm in the kind of the outer office, but I'm just walking through the first door to the hotline now. And I'm in like a little mini airlock, and it has words on the wall which says that 
nobody from the outside should go through, basically, because behind here is lots of images of child sexual abuse. There's no unauthorised access and no mobile phones or unauthorised devices are allowed to be on this point. If we have visitors who want to see the hotline or for that case any people from the outer office who don't usually work in the hotline, they have to ring a bell. When that bell rings it means everyone shuts their screens down and then they're allowed in and then as soon as they're out again that's when we can look at content again because we never ever want people who aren't trained in this to, to see these images because they are, you know, quite horrific. Um, I'm at my desk now. I've got three screens because we need it. We're always opening up a lot of uh, pieces of software and different websites. Okay, so I'm just opening up the reports in my queue um, and I've got a couple here that I can go through with you. I've loaded it up and immediately I'm presented with a website which does have criminal content on it. There are one, two, three, four, five images on it and all these images are criminal. And it's worth saying that with every report, every page I open, it could be one image on a page, it could be like today five, or if it's a cyber locker where you can download bigger amounts of files, it could contain thousands and thousands of images. This is a website with images on it, and then I have to choose what uh, category to put it down as. So I'm looking at all the images, and all of these images I think I have seen previously before. So they've been put up again in a different place. Uh, the couple of them are young females, say between three and six years old, and the category I have is category A, and that's the most severe category. So three to six year old little girls basically being sexually penetrated by a male. There's also a female abuser in this one as well. And I suppose the worst image on this page is actually of a young baby. It looks like a young baby girl who can't be more than a year old and she is being sexually abused as well, very clearly. And the next report I'm just gonna load is one that I found last night actually, just before five o'clock. Loading it up immediately is a, a bright red background and there's one image on this website and the image is a GIF. So it's a moving image and within that GIF there are three females on it. Again, I'd say the oldest is only probably about three years old and it's cycling through these three same girls who are being abused. All of them are being abused. I'm just trying to see what category we've got. So we've got category C, definitely. So there's the girl lying on her bed with her legs apart, genitals exposed. There's focus on the genitals. Very clearly she's been made to do that by somebody else who could photograph it. The next girl, again, is lying on her bed and that's category B. So it's sexual activity between a child and an adult. And third female is, again, I think about probably six years old 
and that is category A, so she's actually being penetrated. Um, this is one that we see quite a lot, it's called a forum. I'm sure everyone's familiar with forums, but a forum will have different threads in it, and in each thread on this particular forum, in most of the threads, they're all going to contain illegal content, and they could contain between you know, one and 700 pages each thread. And usually, on most of the pages, they will contain child sexual abuse images. These ones usually contain images that have been taken from female victims most of the time, but they're webcams. So somebody may have groomed them online and asked them to do certain things. And the girls in it may have thought that this was going to be private. And unfortunately, they don't know that whoever was the other side of the camera was saving the video or saving the images that they created and is now posting them on forums and sites like this. So I've got a 12-year-old here and she's in her bedroom. It's quite a typical, um, typical girl's bedroom, I suppose, in a way. She's got the pink wallpaper uh, or pink paint in her room. She's got a, a blanket or a duvet on her bed, which is also pink and kind of in, with cartoon characters on it. So she does appear to be quite young from that. And then we see a couple of images of her which aren't illegal. Just her face looking at the camera and her in her bed. And then we get further on and then she is now in this next image, she is masturbating for the person on the other side of the camera. And yeah, so that would be a category B. So there's no one else in that room abusing her. However, she's clearly underage, masturbating, and someone has taken photos of that and put them online. So we can class that as a category B image. That's just a brief look at what Ellie and her colleagues have to look at every day. So what effect does this have on them? And how does the IWF look after them? Heidi Kempster, Chief Operating Officer at the IWF, is responsible for staff well-being. She told me what they've put in place to look after the analysts. We have uh, what we like to think is a kind of gold standard support network in place. So they have uh, mandatory monthly counselling with our kind of in-house counsellors here. So they've built relationships with our staff. And they know them very well. We have an annual psychological assessment completed on every one of them. And they are monitored extremely carefully, both by their line managers and by us as directors as well, um, for signs of stress and whether they may not be coping with what they're seeing every day. There used to be the kind of feeling that there was a shelf life of analysts of around two years, but we have analysts that have been working us for 10 years plus. And we believe that because of the support systems we put in place, they're able to continue to do that for lengths of time. They don't become desensitised. They, they actually learn to cope much better with the material. That's not to say that any new material that might come in still remains exceptionally shocking to them. And we have to make sure we're supporting them when that very new and sometimes very violent material might come in. The UK has a zero-tolerance approach to hosting child sexual abuse material, thanks to the work of the IWF and its partners worldwide. So how do they actually do it? Susie Hargreaves says they have a number of ways. 
So first of all, we take reports from the public. So if you are a member of the public anywhere in the world, actually, you can report to us on iwf.org.uk and you send us the URL, which is the web page link, and then we investigate it. And if it's child sexual abuse and fails UK law, then we take action to get it removed. And members of the public can report to us anonymously. And the second way we do it is we actually have the ability to go out and proactively search for content. And we do that uh, using uh, the intelligence of, that our analysts have garnered over many years, but also a whole range of technical tools. And what do you actually do when you find it? Well, when we find it, so if we assess it and every single URL is assessed, not just using our tools, but also by a real life analyst. So a real person has to actually look at it and they have to say, yes, it is child sexual abuse. We then um, look at where it's hosted in the world and we use a number of tools for that. And by hosting, we mean where is the Internet platform that's actually hosting that material that can have it removed. So that could be a variety of platforms. And we use these tools to locate it. And if it's hosted in the UK and less than half a percent is, then we're able as the UK hotline to just check with the police that they've not got an ongoing investigation and that they're happy for us to issue what's called a notice and takedown. And then we issue that to the company and we inform them that they're hosting child sexual abuse and they generally remove that in under a couple of hours. So we have an absolutely world-class reputation in removing the content in the UK. As you said, most of it, though, is hosted overseas. What do you do then? Well, overseas is a little bit more tricky because, of course, we don't have any jurisdiction overseas. So where we find it's hosted overseas, we then locate the country where it's hosted. If they've got a hotline there, we work directly through the hotline. Or if they don't, we work through law enforcement and we notify them that they have got this content, that they are hosting it. And then we keep on their case every single day until they remove it because our argument is always that there's never an excuse to leave child sexual abuse content live because these are real children. And then when we have notified them that they're hosting the content, we place that content on what's known as the IWF blocking list, the URL list. So basically, that's a very dynamic list of live URLs. This is where the content hasn't been removed. And this is deployed across the entire world. And our blocking list is very dynamic. It's updated every single day. And we remove content that's been taken down and we put on other live content. And what happens if you try and access our blocking list is you get a splash page, which informs you that you've been blocked because it's criminal content. It tells you where to go if you're worried about your behaviour, which is Stop It Now, run by Lucy Faithful. It warns you about the potential um, ramifications of your actions and your behaviour, that you might lose your job, your family, even go to prison. And it also tells you how to contact us if you think you've been blocked in error. The IWF also develops new tools in the fight to remove the material. One of these is the crawler, Fred Langford is the IWF's chief technical officer. He told me how it works. If you think of the automated hoovers that somebody just turns on and it goes off and does its business, when it bumps into the wall, it turns around and goes somewhere else. That's really what the crawler does. So if you think of the, the web as a web and you think that these crawlers are crawling along each strand and as they find something, they're sending the information back uh, and they just carry on crawling around and just doing all of this um, either targeted or, or um, just quietly in the background. 
So can't the same technology be used to, to prevent anything ever being uploaded? Is there, can AI help with that? Um, as far as upload, yes, I absolutely agree. I mean, the crawlers wouldn't work for that part of the work. But what I would say is that there's certainly uh, automation that can be used and matching technologies that are already there that mean that you can scan on upload. So if you've got a data set like the IWF has, and there are other data sets, and you know that that's illegal material. I always use the analogy of a nightclub bouncer. So as you turn up to the nightclub doors, the bouncer's going to search you for certain things that you should not have in a nightclub. If you haven't got those things on you, you're perfectly entitled to go in and enjoy yourselves. If you have, you're not coming in. And depending on what it is you've got on you, they may well call the police. Now, it's the same analogy for scanning on upload. So if you think somebody's turning up virtually to the server and saying, I want to put my picture in this virtual area, which is the in the nightclub, in my analogy, and then the virtual bouncer could say, well, actually, are there any of these images known? Are they known to be illegal? And this would work on the same principle for terror material as well, which I know that the, uh, the police are looking at and the government, which is, well, actually, it's a known illegal image, so you're not going to put it on here. We'll hear more from Fred and other analysts throughout the podcast series. Each of the images on those sites which the analysts take down is of a real child. Sadly, many of these images they've seen before, as Ellie explained. Once they're removed, they're simply uploaded somewhere else for the child to be victimised all over again. But it's important to bring this to a personal level. The child in each image is someone's son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, nephew or niece. This is the story of one such girl we're calling Anna. Can you imagine what it's like to learn that the people you thought you could trust most in the world were exploiting your innocence for years? that they've been sharing the evidence of sexually abusing you as a child with potentially hundreds of thousands of people. That is the reality for many of the children our team of expert analysts see every day. Anna is unfortunately a familiar face to our team. Our analysts conclude that she's been groomed into taking part in sexual activity from a very young age with those who are likely to be relatives. We see Anna between the ages of 7 and 11. She's often with another little girl and an older boy. They could well be siblings. And in some cases with an adult male, potentially her father or another close family member. The setting is predominantly domestic, likely her home, somewhere she should have felt safe and protected. Anna has been made to pose provocatively, engage in various sexual activities, and she is raped. We appreciate this is explicit and distressing language, However, the abuse Anna suffers is exactly that. It's explicit, it's degrading, and it's extremely cruel. Over the course of a three-month period, we saw images and videos of Anna 96 times. In two and every five occasions, she was being raped or suffered some other kind of sexual torture. Other times, she was mostly suffering sexual abuse, which didn't include penetration. So it's accurate to say that we see her once a day, sometimes twice. Sadly, we simply don't know if Anna was ever rescued. A brutal tragedy from cases like Anna's is that there must have been a day, probably during her teenage years, when the horror of what she experienced truly dawned. 
the understanding that what she was subjected to was not normal, was not an expression of love, but instead was a ruthless and criminal exploitation of her innocence. Multiple crimes committed over several years and instigated by those who should have been protecting and nurturing that innocence. We know from the testimonies of other child sexual abuse survivors that Anna may well wear the mental and potentially physical scars of the abuse she suffered for the rest of her life. If she is aware that the videos and photographs continue to be circulated online today with such prevalence, her suffering is likely only further compounded. Anna is sadly one of many, many children we see every single day. A victim of grooming, robbed of her right to a carefree and innocent childhood. We can only hope that she now has the support and care she deserves. But the sad truth is, we just don't know. Anna's story was read by Sarah Broadbent. Each episode in this series aims to dispel a myth surrounding child sexual abuse material, and the first is why it is not just child pornography. Tink Palmer is chief executive of the Marie Collins Foundation. Child pornography, children the subject of abusive images, you realise that it changes the whole aspect of how you see that young person or child. And what it does is, if you actually say it as it is, which is the abuse of children through photography, the agency is taken away from the child having some responsibility for it, and it's passed on to the person who's actually taken the images. And here's John Carr again. Some people think, if you use the word pornography, which is associated primarily with the adult industry, that there's some element of consent involved, that the people in the pictures know what they're doing and are happy to do it. No way can that be applied in the case of a child. A child cannot consent to being raped. Nobody can consent to being raped. But in particular, with a child, what you're actually seeing, if you see an image of that kind, is a picture of a child being sexually abused. We don't use the phrase child pornography because we feel it legitimises what is an illegal and a criminal act. It's really important that people realise that child sexual abuse is, is a crime, to look at it and to distribute it. And it's very, very important that we don't minimise the effect that it has on the children, the victims themselves. That was Susie Hargreaves, Chief Executive of the IWF. She has a point about the language. We asked a group of international students if they felt differently about the phrase child pornography compared to the term child sexual abuse material, and they all said they felt there was an important difference. I'd say that child pornography could include things like people taking photos of themselves, maybe 17-year-olds or something, um, and uploading them, whereas child sexual abuse material sort of seems to imply someone forcing a child to make a sex table or upload explicit images. So it seems worse, I think, but also like it encompasses different things. I think that um, the idea of sexual abuse material gives more the idea of something criminal, something as something that is a crime and that uh, involves exactly someone who's being forced to do something they don't want to. I think it gives the idea of violence or something like that. When you think about child pornography, you think more about other teens and adolescents more than just really child. I think that the term child pornography is more 
like the first idea that comes up to mind is that it could also maybe be um, adults playing a role of a child in a porn to, I don't know, for a certain fetish or something. So I think the other term is more, it fits better. Calling it child sexual abuse material really clearly spells out the intention of the material and the cause of what is all going, of all of it. And the cause of all this is people wanting to abuse children. So in this series, we'll be using the term child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. This first episode has taken you behind the scenes of the Internet Watch Foundation to show you the work their analysts do to identify and then remove these images. In our next episode, we'll hear from a victim who's waived her right to anonymity to tell how she was groomed online by someone she thought was a young woman. She said that she was a model. She said she thought I could be a model too because of how pretty I was. And she encouraged me to send more photos of, um, like, a full-length photo with my clothes on. And then she progressed. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in this podcast and need to know where to get help, you can visit iwf.org.uk forward slash podcast. The IWF is a charity and urgently needs to extend its work. To support them financially, please visit iwf.org.uk forward slash fundraising. In future episodes, we'll talk about offenders, how they got this far and what was the effect on their lives and their families' lives when they were caught. We'll also hear from hotlines around the world about how they are tackling the problem globally. This is a Cambridge podcast production for the IWF. It was produced by me, Angela Young, and Vince Hunt. The music is by Jay Richardson, sound design and mixing by Jeff Bruman, and the artwork is by Louis Sarabia. Join me next time. <laughs>